0: He wanted his fat carbon fibre frames that were as stiff as possible and
1: as light as possible. Hey,
0: podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast. The weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin.
1: i got something to say, man.
0: Yo-ho! Welcome to episode 75 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a Semi-Pro Cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking carbon and other bike materials. Hey there, Semi-Pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And let's get rolling today with a very quick review. Thank you from my 16-year-old son, Five Stars, from Todd E. Utah, USA. This show is like audio... Caffeine. I love the good quality and concise info. You keep me motivated during the long, dark winter months of off-season training. Please keep up the good work and great shows. Thank you very, very much, Todd, for taking the time again to go in and drop a review for the show. And a reminder to you that if you do like the show, please take some time out to go to iTunes and write a review because five stars make me... Thank you very much. And straight into a couple of articles that I picked up during the week. The first one is from Tradewind Sports. You may remember that I actually interviewed Chris Harnish from Tradewind Sports not too long ago but we have been having a bit of a back and forth when it comes to periodization and so Chris actually has put together a three part series on his blog and he has a small podcast which I will link to in the show notes but it's pretty interesting look at periodization and how you can apply the different types of periodization models to your training based on your specific circumstance. He has put together a Very quick quiz that you can go through to decide which periodization model not to use and then make a decision on what to use based on all of the other information that is put together. So I highly recommend you go and check it out. It's that time of the year when you will be planning you may be already into base but there is time to actually look at what periodization model suits your situation and the type of racing you do. The second one is a study that I pinched from the guys at Trainer Road. it's called Effects of Active Recovery on Power Output During Repeated maximal sprint cycling. So it's basically answering the question in between your intervals if you are on a trainer or not is it better to be active or passive while you're in between those intervals? And so it's trying to test the effects of active recovery on metabolic and cardiorespiratory responses and power output during repeated sprints. The really interesting thing about this study is that the active recovery actually resulted in a significantly higher mean power output during sprint 2 compared with passive recovery. So I won't get in too much of the details, I do link to it, but the outcome over overall suggests that recovery of power output during repeated spirit exercise is enhanced when low intensity exercise is performed between sprints the beneficial effects of an active recovery are possibly mediated by an increased blood flow to the previously exercised muscle so there you go don't just sit there and do nothing try and at least keep the legs ticking over in some way in between those intervals a couple of other things of note here I got a call from Ken Maynell on another alternative for the snowbound cycle that fits the criteria that I put together in the show on cross training for winter cyclists and I'll play you his message here so you can find out what this
2: alternative is Damien Ken Maynell here Denver Colorado I just listened to your winter cross training for cyclists podcast you asked for other good cross training ideas I've got one just started it inline speed skating it's moderately easy to learn. You can get a taste of speed, you draft. It's a lot like cycling in in some ways. Is it under two hundred dollars? Cost me eighty dollars. Got ten lessons, and they threw in a two hundred and thirty dollar set of skates from Skate City. Love it. Competitive. January starts competition with uh, other groups around the city. Four easy to access. Ten minutes from my house my own. Number five, it's family friendly. I now have got a seven-year-old, a 10-year-old boy. It's hard to get out there and find time. When you go inline speed skating, you go in circles. You don't have to drop anybody. Nobody's going to get hit by a car. It is a load of fun. And my 10-year-old's better than me at this point. We have a blast. So throw that out to your listeners. Inline speed skating. It's a lot of fun. Look into it. Take care of yourself and keep those wonderful podcasts up. Bye-bye. It sounds pretty
0: interesting to me and I actually had a quick look at it. Inline speed skating looks like it ticks a lot of boxes and it's got to be better on your joints and similar to cycling in the way that it's a smooth flowing sport compared to the harshness of running. The only trouble that I see with this sport is having to wear the onesie just like cross-country skiing. It's a little risque when you're a mammal and you can kind of hide it when it comes to cycling gear. But there is absolutely no hiding in a one-piece Lycra suit. The last bit of news that I want to talk about is my coaching and I have some spots that have become available and I am able to take on a few new athletes for the two thousand and fourteen season. I'll put the link in the show notes so you can check out where I'm coming from. The best way to get more information on it really is to speak to me. So if you email Damien at semiprocycling.com, then we can line up a time to have a chat on Skype and see what your plans for two thousand and fourteen are and where the coaching can fit into those plans. I really look forward to hearing from some people that want to make 2014 their best season yet. So the nuts and bolts this week, and I interviewed someone that really does not even need an introduction. I'm sure if you have been into training and endurance sport for even a short amount of time, you've come across this name. Yes, it's Joe Friel, and I had a chat to him about periodization, the characteristics of champions, and how to perform over a long period of time. If you don't know much about Joe, he is a very interesting character and his backstory is just as interesting as his information and advice for cyclists. Joe has trained endurance athletes since 1980 and it was a long journey until he was a full-time coach which happened in the early 90s. But from that point onwards, he really has taken the endurance world by storm and is one of the most prolific writers of training information in cycling and that other sport we don't talk about, (coughs) triathlon. And while he is the author, of something like 14 books for endurance athletes. He also was an active coach until recently retiring and he still is active in the world of endurance where he conducts seminars and training camps for triathletes and cyclists around the world. One other interesting aspect to Joe is that he has maintained his training and some racing throughout this entire time and still does today. So there is a lot of wisdom to tap into and honestly I didn't know where to to start. So I just picked a couple of random topics that have been on my mind lately, and I believe are relevant to your cycling. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. When I think of Joe Friel, of course I think about the Bible series, but I also know that there's a vast amount of information that you have put out there, and definitely when I'm searching for any information, usually all roads lead back to you so I want to not really focus on just one topic today I want to kind of move around a little bit because there is so much information that you have put out there but the first one I kind of want to hone in on is the characteristics of champions and the people that you have worked with over the years I know you're retired now from active coaching but I know there was probably a lot of athletes that were lining up to work with you how did you select the athletes that wanted to work with you?
1: Oh, gosh, basically what I did was I uh, would interview athletes and uh, look for certain characteristics that I thought would be the best indicators that we could work together very well. I I learned that the hard way back in some of my earlier experiences working with athletes. I, uh, uh, I guess as we all do when you're new at something, you make mistakes, and the biggest mistakes I made always were picking people to work with that... That somehow just didn't match up with um, with how I operate. So I was always looking for, for those sorts of things when I was interviewing athletes. So was it
0: a lot of gut feeling or was there any specific things that you would look out for?
1: No, there was kind of a combination of both. Gut feelings as far as getting being able to get along and just uh, have kind of a something uh, that we we feel like you know we both can communicate with each other openly and freely that's always that's always an important uh, point for for coach athlete relationship but there was other stuff um for example um motivation is critical uh, i learned that with one pro i coach uh, gosh a really good pro back in the 90s um he uh touched tremendous talent but if it was raining he decided not to ride because it just wasn't good enough for him uh, if it was cold or windy those were reasons to consider not riding also uh, or if something came up in his life no matter how insignificant it seemed like he might miss a workout and the guy was tremendous talent and Could have he did some great things as it was already he really did very well as, a, as an athlete racing competitive wise but he just never quite reached the pinnacle of what but he could have done and it was just really it was just motivation that was holding him back so i always, I always look for that There would be questions i would ask you really can't ask somebody if they're motivated but i think they're motivated but i'd ask questions like how often do you ride alone uh that's a, that's a really good question to ask i found because people who have low motivation really just can't do a workout by themselves they've mm-hmm. got to have other people around them to kind of motivate them to get out the door and, and ride Uh, People who can ride alone are typically highly motivated, so I I would explore things along those lines. Uh, What types of workouts do you do uh, when you're alone compared with riding with a group? Uh, But always looking for, first of all, most important thing, motivation. Is the athlete really um, dedicated to uh, success?
0: So even after having some type of filter in this sense where you try and source out and just work out what they're motivated to do and how motivated they are, were you ever surprised by any performances of any athletes that you had?
1: Um, yeah, to some extent, I guess. You always, have a, you always have a pretty good feeling of how the athletes are, your athlete is going to do uh, when they're coming up to a race, especially an A-priority race, because you've been doing things that kind of mark progress measures of progress along the way and so it's not like a big mystery when you get there what's going to happen but as we all know in bike racing, especially there are so many variables that can't be accounted for in training you know mostly decision tactical sorts of things um that that's the sort of stuff that you don't really know what to expect and that that you know those sorts of things is is i've seen but seen go both ways where athletes have exceptional performances when, because essentially they made the right decisions at the right times and I've also seen athletes who had uh, less than stellar performances because they made bad decisions but typically typically it doesn't come down to, in road racing, it doesn't come down to fitness so much as far as knowing what's going to happen as it does to tactics um, of the race. You were talking
0: there about training metrics and moving away from talking about anything to do with physical what are some mental signs that you know someone's ready and you think that they're going to do well when they
1: race? Oh, gosh. there are, I suppose there's quite a few, actually, things you're looking for. One of the things I like to see in an athlete is a, is a, um, a sense of confidence as they approach the race. And I think that really is born of, uh, of training and preparation for the race. Uh, the athlete kind of knows in their head they've done... Um, all the stuff that's required to uh, to be ready and uh, and so it begins to show up in the way they communicate with me as their coach uh, the things they see there's kind of a positive vibe that comes from them when you have a conversation positive vibe about how things are going and how they expect the uh, the race to turn out and so that's really i think the main thing i'm looking for is just that there's this this attitude—that uh, kind of an "I can do it" sort of attitude—that's—that's that's there. Although I have to—I'll have to admit that I've seen athletes before who didn't have that attitude and uh, surprised themselves. I had one athlete back in the, gosh, I guess, ten years or so ago, that surprised both herself and and me uh, on race day uh, when she uh, won the national championship. We knew she'd do well, but uh, we didn't expect that to happen. And so it was really kind of a that was kind of a fun experience to go through when somebody does something at a very high level like that when it's unexpected.
0: The idea of confidence is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately because the fitness can build up slowly and you can be consistent with training, but confidence is something that can come and go, but that's really the gateway to getting a good performance in some cases.
1: I think so, yeah, I spend a lot of time with, uh, or did, as you mentioned before, I'm I'm, uh, retired from coaching now, but I used to spend a good deal of time with some of my athletes uh, doing, working on things to boost confidence. And uh, in fact, that young lady that um, I mentioned that won a national championship, uh, that was really the key issue for her was she was just lacking self-confidence and so I spent more time probably working on that with her than working on physiology of training and uh, it paid off more much faster than I thought it would actually she really had a tremendous season one year and it was really primarily just because she changed her attitudes about herself uh, great to see that happen, uh, not always easy to, to make happen though
0: yeah, it's definitely one of those things that uh, it requires a lot of consistent work, just as much as training itself, I think. But uh, it's a bit of a mystery to me, still is a bit of a mystery to me. But <laughs> just moving on now, it would be a miss of me if I didn't talk about periodization because I feel this is one of your greatest contributions to the broader cycling community, the idea of traditional or linear periodization, something that you opened up for a lot of people. And the origins of that come from Tudor Bompa. How did you first come across his work?
1: Oh gosh, just by happenstance, actually. I happened to pick up a book back in the uh, early 80s that had just come into print, his book, uh, because I was very interested in all things that had to do with training, so I'm always scanning the, the bookshelves looking to see what there is. And I uh, came across a book called Theory and Methodology of Training by Tudor Bampa. I had no idea who Tudor was at the time. And uh, picked up the book, purchased it, uh, began reading, and realized what he was talking about was some of the things I've been struggling with in my own coaching of athletes was trying to come to grips with uh, uh, building performance to to a point in time. And he discussed all that in his book. In fact, the book is still in print. This has been, I don't know, 30 years later now and that book is still in print, a new publisher. In fact, I helped him find his new publisher back many years ago. He was searching for a publisher, and we chatted about it. I want to see that book stay in print. So it's a, it's a great book. It's very, very complex. So it's not easy reading. It's the sort of thing you've got to be kind of really into sports science uh, to want to read it, uh, which I am. I really enjoy sports science. But any, any of the listeners who are into sports science and really want to uh, understand what's going on with training, especially periodization, uh, Theory and Methodology of Training is the book to read.
0: Was he actually using it for cycling in that book?
1: Actually in the book he was discussing all sports. He's, he's not related to any given sport. His background was, uh, besides having a PhD in exercise physiology, was that he had coached for the Romanian uh, team uh, across the board. He coached mostly track and field, but some other athletes also in other sports and uh that's basically all of his concepts grew out of his own coaching uh we had a conversation once and i got had to ask got to ask him questions about how did you come up with this idea or that idea and he always took me back to uh to an occurrence something in his life working with a given athlete and uh, the revelation he had in working with this athlete and began to employ it with other athletes and discovered it was uh, is viable for other athletes also and began to then use it across the board. And uh, so his, um, his, his stuff is was and continues to be pretty much cutting edge as far as I'm concerned. He's still The things that we learned back then are still very important today. They've just been elaborated on much more in the last you know, 15 years or so.
0: So you still feel that it's really relevant to anyone that's training?
1: Yeah, the basic concept is um, there are now a lot of variations on periodization models and a lot more ways of looking at periodization than there was 30 years ago. So that continues to grow. But the concept is still the same. And for an athlete or a coach to move on to uh, um, try other things with, with athletes, they need to first, I, I believe, understand the basic premise of what periodization is all about, so that brings us back to Bompas, and as we say, what is what are the roots of periodization? We go back to him, and once we've established that, then we begin to talk about how can we improve on that for the athletes that we coach.
0: So how about linear periodization itself? When would an athlete consider moving beyond that idea into some other type of periodization?
1: Well, I, th- I think it has to do with... Um, uh, how advanced the athlete is primarily uh, I, I suspect that most any athlete in the first let's take the first three years of their mm-hmm. of their uh sport career um would benefit from using linear periodization and maybe by the time we at seven years or so uh six seven years it's start time to start thinking about variations on that on that model Uh, Maybe before that for some athletes who come along really quickly. Um, For other athletes who remain rather low-key about performance, uh, really doing it primarily for fun, linear periodization works great. But for the athlete who really wants to look at um, some of the ways they might improve their performance beyond it, Beyond where they are at that given point in time, uh, new other periodization models may help them to accomplish that. Unfortunately, you really can't find out other than to try it. It's kind of a trial, um, hit and miss sort of thing, trial and error. You just have to try it and see what it works if it works out or not for that athlete in that given situation.
0: One of the really interesting things about any training information that is out there is that it's pretty hard to get a hold of what athletes are actually doing. Uh, whether they are pro or semi-pro, it's very difficult to get an idea of what other sort of periodization models that other athletes would be using. Can you help me understand what other options there are out there from your experience, just that you've come across, not necessarily going into them too deep or whatever?
1: Sure. Well, let's take right now one of the things that's been going on is what uh, Team Sky has been doing. Uh, they've been using a, a different model. Uh the Kerrison, their coach i believe his name is Kerrison, k-e-r-r-i-s-o-n if i recall right uh came from from a swim background yeah rowing background also i believe and um he brought some different ideas with him which was really good i like to see that happen when sports begin to uh, cross over boundaries it's good for everybody and uh he's using what he calls reverse periodization I, i might argue it's really not reversed but the concept is that he's Focused on intensity early in the season, like right now, and then begins to focus more on uh, volume and duration uh, later in the season as the as the uh, early part of the season progresses. So that's that's one variation on, on what we consider to be typical linear periodization. Another would be uh, uh, block periodization, uh, which has got great. Uh, benefits great potential, I think, for uh, for some athletes. It's much more focused. Um, generally, in periodization, you work the athlete works on several things at the same time. There may be three things. That the AF is working on during a week, three different energy systems, for example. Whereas in block prioritization, we focus only on one, and there may be one that we're also doing besides that for maintenance. But it's highly focused, so that you get a lot more time in uh, working on um, a given energy system or given. Uh, method or given level intensity or something that stays constant throughout a block of time before moving on to the next block where you focus again on only one thing while trying to maintain something that came before that and I think that's got a lot of value for advanced athletes also I don't see it being used as much it's a little more uh, complex um, than most and almost requires that the athlete work out by themselves almost all the time. It's hard to do the block prioritization with uh, with a lot of other uh, part training partners. Um, and, and there are other methods also. We, I, we keep going into these, but there's just a lot of stuff that we could do with prioritization.
0: Yeah, I find it a, a fascinating topic because it's still really not understood by the majority of people. I think there are successful coaches out there that really understand it and are quite successful. And like you say, the Carrickson from Sky is taking it and, and using it in a different way and obviously getting great results from it. Um, yeah. it. It strikes me that you are really interested and you're a lifelong learner when it comes to absorbing any information and especially crossing over information from other sports and things which is really good to see and maybe that's something else that you've brought to cycling because I know that tradition plays a big part in a lot of training and so people are quite stuck in their ways and they don't actually look outside of of what they've done for a long time but how do you bring other things in? Where do you get your information from or or what other sports do you look towards as inspiration?
1: Well, My background has been quite varied. Uh, I started out as a runner back in the 70s and uh, so tried to learn about basically about uh, the science of training from a runner's perspective which is unique I came to realize later on Um, began working with triathletes about the same time I started working with road cyclists and and uh, so triathlon then takes you into other sports. But swimming, for example, uh, swimmers have a different way of seeing the world than than runners do, or than, cy- or than cyclists do. And so that that brought some fresh insights, some new ways of looking at the world. Um, they're they're very knowledgeable about, for example, intervals, uh, because basically all, all you do when you swim, you do tons of intervals. It's intervals all the time, and so they've got all these variations on how to do intervals and what the rec- coveries ought to be, et cetera, et cetera. So that's good good information to bring into running, to bring into road cycling. Uh, I worked with mountain bikers, uh, which is somewhat different, obviously, than road cycling. Uh, they have some unique things, too, about their sport, primarily, for example, uh, um, skill development. Uh, skills are, high, are critical to being a mountain biker. We don't think of skills as being all that important for a road cyclist, and yet they are. And so that brought... Uh, another way of looking at road cycling, also from uh, the mountain biker's perspective, pedaling skills, for example, or handling road handling, the bike uh, cornering, cornering, and and such. And so uh, each sport has got something unique about it. And um, so I've just, in fact, I've coached. A lot, I coached uh, back in the 80s. I also coached uh, into the early 90s. Coached a uh, paddler, um, you know. Uh, sculling, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which is a different sport, different ideas, different ways of seeing the world. I even coached uh, endurance horse racers uh, for at one time. I coached the national champions, uh, men and men and women, uh, one season. Not training the horses, of course, but training the riders. And that again, they had fresh ways of seeing the world. So I've just had a kind of a broad background in endurance sports, and I think it's helped me to, to develop uh, the way I coach athletes.
0: Actually, I listened to a great interview that you did with um, Glenn Whitney from Sports Coach Radio, huh? where he really dug into the other side of, of your coaching and kind of touched on all these areas that you – you started with and and how many athletes that you kind of had to get in order to make coaching your full-time gig and things. And it was quite a fascinating listen. And I highly recommend everyone check that out because uh, there's a lot to you, Joe Friel, as far as not just what you read in the books, but there's a whole back end story behind that. And a big part of that as well is you as the athlete. And I must say that I feel that you're a great example for consistent training and training and competing over a long period of time. And I'm not sure because it's that you've documented your training over the years, but I really don't know of any other athlete that's been able to maintain training and racing as long as you have. How
1: do you keep going? Good question. Uh, (laughs) I I think it really just comes down to enjoyment. Uh, at two levels one I I enjoy training because I also enjoy doing races although I get to race very seldom Uh, my travel schedule makes it really difficult for me but uh, uh, so I enjoy it from that perspective and I also enjoy training from perspective of seeing I've got a body it's a human body uh, and I like to see what happens to the human body when you do different things in training and so I'm always experimenting with myself that's basically everything that I do w- working with athletes at one time was something I did strictly with myself and before trying with somebody else and so, uh, so enjoyed. I, I really get a kick out of, out of uh, training it's just a lot of fun for me so
0: you're the number one guinea pig of anything that you want to do
1: <laughs> yeah that's true, I'm, I'm the guinea pig
0: so, just putting you on the spot, then—any great experiments that you did on yourself that you uh, haven't done with anybody else because they were too crazy?
1: Yeah, actually, I'm uh, right now I'm writing a book for um, older athletes uh, beyond the age of fifty, and uh, I've been toying or going through the research. I spent all of gosh uh, June through October reading research just digging through it uh everything you read on the on the issue of aging athletes it's been a lot Um, and uh, consequently i've come up with some ideas on how to uh, how an aging athlete uh, might consider training i I can't say it is the way but it's a way and i think it's a way that would bring performance enhancement for athletes as they get older uh, that they're not doing and uh, so, anyway, I'm, I'm toying around with this right now myself. I'm really not ready to say that this is the, the ultimate solution, but it's something that uh, I'm trying out, and I'm I'm enjoying it, and I and I'm starting to see results. I think, but it's a little bit early right now.
0: And so, when can people find these results? When when is this uh, this information going to be out there?
1: But the book will be out um, in about a year. Uh, I just finished chapter one. There are ten chapters. So I've got a ways to go, and then my, so I'll have it done probably by June, then my publisher goes through it and edits it, and, that, and then goes through the whole process, and that takes another five months or so. So it'll be, it'll be about a year before the book is on the shelves, but that'll, I, I hope if everything goes right, that uh, I can explain to athletes as they get older uh, some alternatives on how to cha- train to, uh, to improve their performance.
0: So not digging too deep into that topic, I just kind of have one question on that topic which I think about often. You know, I'm 33 and I plan on continuing cycling for a long time, but I understand that at a certain point my performance will start declining, even if it's small percentage drops. How do you or how have you been able to stay positive even though your performance is declining?
1: Uh, Well, sometimes it's not easy. (laughs) I just tested yesterday, and uh, there's a seasonal change in in performance uh, when you do testing, Mm -hmm. and I realize that, but I just had the lowest numbers I've ever had since I started keeping records, uh, power records, about, oh, I suppose 13 years or so ago. And uh, so that's a little bit difficult to take, but at the same time, it tells me that I've got nothing nowhere to go but up at this point, and so the stuff I'm trying out with uh, the, uh, the aging concepts, training concepts I mentioned a while ago, uh, have the perfect guinea pig because I've I've dropped down to a relatively low level, and I want to see what happens uh, with this as time goes on because of how I'm training.
0: Yeah, I guess if you look at it in a micro level, in a small level, then if you're just doing small experiments and you're not thinking about the bigger picture or... What you were five years ago or 10 years ago, then you can be encouraged that there still can be some gains in where you are at the moment.
1: Yeah, and at my age, um, you know, I've, I've, I've come to accept the fact that I'm going to slow down. It's not going to, I can't obviously keep going forever without slowing down. I've seen it happen to everybody I know who's older than me, who are good athletes. And so consequently, it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time.
0: Well, you're definitely a great example and someone that I look up to in that realm. So thank you very much for documenting all of this stuff. And I really do look forward to the new information and, and the book when it does come out. Joe, where can you direct people? Where can I direct people so they can best get in contact with you if they want to find out more?
1: Probably go to my blog, um, com, And uh, they can contact me there directly by email or uh, um or place a comment if you're reading one of my my posts.
0: Great. Thank you very much for being on the show. It's been an honor. I look forward to following up in the future and, and seeing what other information you can supply to
1: us. I appreciate it, David. Thank you very much.
0: Now let's get to the tech hacks and product section and this week it's a product, the training mask and similar to the product that I mentioned not too many weeks ago about a product that reduces the oxygen intake in a simple mask format by not enabling you to breathe in extra oxygen thus copying the effects on your body that training at altitude produces. It looks like you could wear it on the trainer without getting too gunky or just junked up and too dirty and gross to wear over and over again and it looks like it was sturdy enough to also also support any type of outside activity that you may want to do with it. I really don't know if you're going to be heading outdoors with this thing on your face, but I can tell you that if you were, that this would probably be the coolest option to get out there and do it, and hey, you're probably going to look like a weirdo anyway. I have put the link in the show notes so you can check it out and if it does interest you then definitely let me know because I am thinking about doing a podcast on how to actually use these products or items to enhance your training. Now that quote from the top of the show it's the legendary Lotus 108 designer Mike Burrows on why the material question isn't as simple as it first appears. He goes through steel, aluminium and carbon. they are different characteristics and their different effects on performance which I find super interesting considering carbon is the choice of all performance bikes in this day and age. So this guy has been around a long time and the clip actually comes from a neat little clip where he discusses it in a little bit more detail and I'll put the link in the show notes so you can check out what's the best material to make a bike from and that's it for this week so till next week get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box whichever one you're into